0: Few, a fussing and
1: a fighting. This is a wrong that needs a right. Let's get that funeral service over so then we'll go
2: few and Again. Oh yeah, we're probably going to be feuding and fighting about the films and Oscars of 1947, and you've reached one of the biggest shows we do all year here at the No Name Cinema Society. It's our classic year in view. and this year we are taking a deep dive into the films of 1947, films celebrating their 75th Anniversary this year. Hello everybody. My name is Jonathan Betzler. I'm one of your hosts here tonight. One of the members of the No Name Cinema Society. I'm here at my home in Los Angeles. Got my little set going here and ready to go on uh, one of the biggest shows we do all year. Um, Before we get going further, let me introduce my co-stars for tonight's discussion. The two most tenured members of the No Name Cinema Society outside of myself. First, ladies and gentlemen, a hard-boiled private eye, or at least he'd like to play one on TV, especially if there are femme fatales involved, whether they become Electra or are out of the past to bring him the kiss of death. Ladies and gentlemen, Devin Michaels is here.
0: It's it's very uh, it's very disconcerting
2: how much you know about me, and vice versa, my friend. Um, also with us, ladies and gentlemen, a pompous, rigid father whose daughter is a farmer and who made a gentleman's agreement to appear in the show in order to cover up his double life as an actor and producer. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Carroll is here.
1: <laughs> well, I you know pompous, uh, yeah, no, that's that's also very accurate.
2: Very good. We always start these shows with like little fun facts where we set up the year 1947 to give you a sense of what was going on in the, in the world at the time. And that can give us some context for when we discuss the films themselves. Um, We always start with music. I don't even remember why, but that's just the the way it goes. Uh, For our 1942 interview review that Jim was a part of, we marveled at how the real pop stars of the era were more the band leaders and not necessarily the vocalists. Of course, we lost Glenn Miller during the war, while some of the other guys like Harry James were still around. The pop charts did seem to shift focus to the singers. People like Vaughn Monroe, Andy Russell, Johnny Johnston, Dinah Shore, Guy Lombardo, Bing Crosby, and Frank Sinatra, who in 1942 was a part of Tommy Dorsey's band and now is a star in his own right. We also always like to announce the number one song uh, of each year that we study, and so here was the number one song of 1947. There's just one place for me Okay, so that was a little song. It's a little, it's very catchy. I've been listening to it all year. It's a very catchy song called Near You by Francis Craig. Either of you guys uh, heard that song before or, uh, hearing it just now? No. No, no I didn't think Except so. Except that <laughs> Jim just was just claiming he listens to it every night. A lot of these number one songs are th- songs we all know and love. This one was a little more obscure. I was a little surprised. So that's it for music. Now we're on to Devin's least favorite part of the show. Oh my God, I have a least favorite part? I thought you didn't like when we talked about the sports. I will try and get through it very quickly. We always go in seasonal order, like in the way like the championships happen um, You know, in the calendar year. In the first championship of any given year is usually the NCAA tournament. Uh, March Madness only featured eight teams in 1947, and it was Holy Cross who emerged victorious. That team featured future NBA legend point guard Bob Cousy, who was a freshman at the time. It is the only title the Holy Cross Crusaders would ever win. On to hockey, just like in 1942, the Toronto Maple Leafs would win the Stanley Cup in the All-Canada Finals versus Montreal. It was their third of an eventual five titles in the decade. A 1947 actually marked the first ever season of a national basketball league then called the BAA, or the Basketball Association of America. The first ever champion would be the Philadelphia Warriors, who would win in five games over the Chicago Stags. They would win again in 1956. The Warriors would, of course, move to the Bay Area to become the Golden State Warriors, who are the reigning champions from 2022. And, of course, one of the most significant moments in American history came in 1947 through the sport of baseball. In April, Jackie Robinson crossed the color line to become the first black player in the major leagues in any sport. Not only would Robinson win the inaugural Rookie of the Year award, but would lead the Brooklyn Dodgers to a National League pennant. The Dodgers faced the New York Yankees in the World Series that year, but Robinson was not enough to bring the title to Brooklyn that year. The Yankees won in a hard-fought seven-game series, largely thanks to a couple of home runs from Joe DiMaggio. In NCAA football, the Michigan Wolverines would win the college football championship in 1947, getting votes from the majority of the polls for their 10-0 season. It was their ninth of 11 national titles, they would win again the following year in 1948 and then not again until 1997, and they haven't won since. And finally, in the NFL, for most of you know that the Philadelphia Eagles went to the Super Bowl this past February, losing to the Kansas City Chiefs. In 1947, the Eagles went to the NFL championship game and would lose again, this time to the Chicago Cardinals, led by running back Charlie Trippi. The Cardinals would move to St. Louis in 1960 and then to Arizona in 1988. Before we get to films of 1947, we have to talk about some of the news items, the hot button news items of the time. In January, Elizabeth Short is found brutally murdered in Los Angeles. She was an aspiring actress whom Devin, of course, was dating at the time. The still unsolved case is better known as, Jim? Black Dahlia? The Black Dahlia murder, absolutely. Here's one thing that I didn't know about, and maybe Jim did, uh, because he's a Jeopardy champion. Uh, On April 16th, 1947, ammonium nitrate of a French cargo ship exploded in Texas City, Texas, and is the largest man-made non-nuclear explosions in history, killing 581 people, injuring 5,000, and leveling 20 city blocks. It's called the Texas City Disaster. I don't know if I've ever heard about that until this project.
1: No, no, I've never heard of it.
2: On May 29, 1947, United Flight 521 couldn't get off the ground at LaGuardia and slammed it into embankment, killing 42 people in what was the worst aviation disaster in American history. Until the following day, on May 30th, Eastern Air Flight 605 crashed in Bainbridge, Maryland, killing 53 people. And I thought it was interesting that consecutive days we would break that ignominious record, Jim.
1: When was the FAA created? <laughs> I want to know that.
2: You know what? I, I didn't look that up, but uh, but maybe you could do that as I, I get to the next uh, topic.
1: It was 11 years later. It wasn't created until 1958. It's consecutive air disasters, not <laughs> enough to create a federal agency and start regulating.
2: In July of 1947, Devin, Harry Truman signs into law the National Security Act of 1947. The act effectively created the Air Force, the National Security Council, and the CIA. And finally, in August of 1947, India finally won their hard-fought independence from Great Britain. Jawaharlal Nehru becomes the first prime minister of the new independent nation. In addition to India gaining their independence, Pakistan, within a day or so, would also gain their independence. All right, so that was some news items from 1947. These guys are excited because it's time to start talking about the films. Uh, you know, not the Oscar races yet, but to, just to start talking about the, you know, the films in general. Um, I was able to compile a list of 153 films released in domestic cinemas in the calendar year of 1947 that were eligible for Oscar consideration. There may have been more that slipped through the cracks. There usually is, but this is the vast majority particularly exciting about this year is two of the films are in my top 100 of all time and one of them is a top 10 film all time and I suspect given how well he knows me Devin knows what that film is so he might have a sense of what's coming tonight. In the meantime here is a chart of how many films the others have watched when we've done these projects. Zach and James are tied for the lowest amount of films watched with 22 each. Zach for 1970 and James for 1959. Kelly set the new bar last year, having watched 86 films for the 1986 in review. So we're going to see how these guys stack up. How many films watched out of the 153? Devin, how'd you do?
0: 32.
2: When you did 1942, you did 23. So how'd you do this year?
1: More. Um, I was actually really afraid because I thought, again, super busy. I thought I was going to be the way low man out. Um, But... Devin and I tied. I also did thirty-two films.
2: Interesting. I wonder if it's the same thirty-two. I wonder if there's an exact crossover. I, I'm kind of curious to see. I did get a hundred films on the nose this year, so that brings us to the next question, guys. The biggest film missed. So, it, like, in other words, if you had, if you could watch one more film, uh, what would it be? And I got Jim going first.
1: I think it's Road to Rio. It's it's a movie that I kept on planning to watch and kept on pushing it off. It Did you watch nice.
2: Road to Morocco as part of our 1942 interview?
1: I didn't. That, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to watch Road to Rio.
2: Devin, what about you? One more. It would have been great if I had time to... Uh... Like if I had another two hours, literally, I would have done uh, Morning Becomes Electra. I think that's longer than two hours, but so I think you need a little more than that. So for me, guys, availability was shifting throughout the year. There were films that I initially thought were available and then all of a sudden one, so I was really heartbroken when Wyoming became unavailable. I'm actually working on a script for Devin as a leading man called Wyoming. I was working on a Western. It was available, then it wasn't the day I went to watch it. The other film that I would have watched if I had time that is available is a film called The Hucksters with Clark Gable. I had taped it off of TCM. It just fell through the crack. You know, speaking of films that were unavailable, because you know the, the, the next uh, section is where we talk about the highest-grossing films of 1947, and strangely enough, the number one highest-grossing film of 1947 was something I couldn't find anywhere, nor had I heard of. It's a film called Welcome Stranger, and it reunited Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald, who co-starred in the 1944 Best Picture winner, Going My Way. Usually you hear of the number one highest grossing film of the year, but not this particular year. The highest grossing film I did watch was a film called The Egg and I, the second highest grossing film of the year, and was a film that introduced the world to Ma and Pa Kettle. It was based on a popular book and featured Claudette Colbert and Fred McMurray. And Cecil B. DeMille scored the third highest-grossing film of the year. It's called Unconquered, and it starred Gary Cooper and Paulette Goddard during the time of westward expansion in American colonies just before the Revolutionary War. So those are the highest-grossing films of 1947. And this segment is where we talk about the film trends, trends that we noticed over watching, you know, 32 or 100 films of 1947, what are things that uh, that came up a lot. Um, and, you know, as Jim may recall when we did the 1942 in review, World War II was the overriding theme to the point it was shoehorned into many of the films. And so now we're here in post-war America, very recent post-war America. However, while there are plenty of of films that featured soldiers and ex-soldiers, the films didn't deal with the return of soldiers as directly on the whole as some films from 1946 did. Instead, the after effects of the traumatic war in Europe manifested itself in more subversive ways. One light and one shadow side. First the shadow, quite literally. Noir, noir, and more noir. It, it, it was almost overwhelming how many films fit into the style that we now refer to as film noir, including the noirious noir, or the one that I would consider the greatest noir of all time, which I may or may not get to in the discussion tonight. But that film is a top 100 film for me. For the uninitiated, film noir features high contrast lighting, mysteries featuring either detective or often a de facto detective, femme fatale in an almost subconscious way that ties back to Pandora's box, And Eve's apple, and mostly a dark sense of fatalism. And in fact, endings were very often not as happy as they had been in pre war films. The lighting and composition style of these films derives itself from 20s German expressionism, but academics suggest that the dark content was born out of a post war cynicism that was seemingly new to the country. Due to the war, Americans had traveled the globe more and had been exposed to unimaginable horrors and they returned with a certain distrust, distrust of a system or distrust of a people and that general cynicism weaved its way into the films through this emerging genre. So before I get into the light side of their reaction to post-war America, we can talk a little about film noir. Jim was nodding a lot, so I'll let him go first.
1: I have written in my notes uh, things to talk about. You can have any genre you want as long as it's noir. But I think
2: this, at least 50% of the films I watched might well, have
1: been noir in 1947. Even like, you know, I, I, the way that it got put into comedies, everything even had just just like a flavor. You couldn't really escape it. There were a lot more city-focused movies than in the 1942 one. I was looking at my next cue and I just wanted to find a movie that wasn't a noir. For- <laughs> And I think that might have been when I watched the egg and I. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, mission accomplished as far as that's concerned. Sounds like uh, Jim agrees. Out of his thirty-two, he watched a handful of noirs. Devin, did you have a similar experience?
0: Yeah, the the beginning of my of my watching was probably ninety percent noirs. It's disconcerting after a while. It's hard to digest that much darkness after a while. It's worse than cynical. It's like a nihilistic kind of perspective that I think the country was understandably mired in. They had fought this horrendous war and, and it seemed to render everything else kind of meaningless. The, the whole collective unconscious of the time was steeped in this blackness. But after a while, it, it was just hard to, to keep watching.
2: I talked about the light side of, the, of post-war America. You know, I think it is centered around a kind of escapism. I was expecting the noir. Like, that, I've studied a lot of noir, and so I knew what that was part of post-war America. Um, and I knew that there was a result of that. And cynicism is the word they use a lot in the academic circles related to film noir. So I just sort of echoed that. What I was surprised by is the lighter side uh, that I thought was almost like an escapist reaction. While noir dug into the dark side, there was a bunch of films that took a deep dive into nostalgia for pre-war America, specifically late 19th and early 20th century, looking at these eras with almost unrealistic rose-colored glasses, um, and that I didn't expect as a big part of the films of 1947. Examples would be Life with Father, The Perils of Pauline, The Shocking Miss Pilgrim, Mother Wore Tights, Good News, Do the Clouds Roll By? There was a lot of these films that took a different tack instead of digging into that fatalism and cynicism and nihilism, they went in the other direction and tried to remember a time, almost unrealistically remember a time that things were nicer, things were happier, we were more innocent and and it was a better world almost. The nostalgia, element surprised me a lot in, in how much it kept coming up. Devin? Yeah,
0: you know, the world had just fallen apart and nothing gives quite the comfort of a catchy tune or a chorus kick line. You're right, there were a number of films
2: uh, 47 that 47 that were going for that same vibe. Another example of the light and shadow side of life, there were a great number of films that tried to reinforce the need for empathy and compassion. Examples like Miracle on 34th Street, It Happened on Fifth Avenue, The Bishop's Wife, Heaven Only Knows, And on the flip side, the amount of deception that went unchecked uh, in many of the films. For example, Cary Grant pretending to date Shirley Temple in The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. Martha Vickers pretending to be poor to woo an out-of-work songwriter in Love and Learn. Merle Oberon pretending to be blind to woo a blind pianist in Night Song. Those are just some extreme examples. And it was surprising because those lies are not okay and seem to set a bad precedent. So again, the light in the shadow side of approaching things, there's this call for compassion, but there's also this acceptance of deception that struck me a lot.
1: Along with the compassion, it was really trying to reset family and a return to normalcy and these good ties that we have. I mean, I think even when you look at something like Monsieur Verdoux, they still tried to ground this serial killer in that there was goodness in him in his relationship to his family. That's a really
2: good point. I should have included that on the list.
1: It all ties in together. It's all like a return to like, we're beating our swords into plowshares now. It's time to return to this.
2: Devin, compassion and deception and the balance of those things in 1947.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I just, I agree with, with what you both just said about
2: it. Devin. You had some other trends that you wanted to call attention to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I thought there certainly was the trend of addressing gender roles, not exactly in a groundbreaking way, but not necessarily in a completely conventional way either. Yes, we need to look at these things and we're mostly agreeing we need to stick with it because that's gonna return us to, to maybe this more innocent time. For example, in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, it also, I thought, was speaking to some of that in a way that I wouldn't have expected perhaps pre-war. There were a couple of other examples like that where it felt like we were going back in this way of wanting to say this should be regimented, but also let's look at it.
2: So it seems like you're saying like it was around the edges but they weren't ready to address it directly. Yes, and I guess that makes sense considering again what we were talking about with the larger themes or the larger trends of what everyone had just gone through. There was a lot of things I think we learned about life in 1947 that makes the whole thing very much like time travel all right guys it's time to move on this is the moment that a lot of you have all been waiting for it's time to talk about some oscars we're gonna dig into some races here and those that we were friends earlier but now we may not be and i thought there was gonna be a lot of agreement tonight but already i'm seeing that there looks like there is not gonna be as much agreement as i had initially thought so uh i'm a little worried and a feuding and fighting is how we started the show and it looks like that's where we're gonna go um For all of you who are telling me, oh, it's 2023 already, why do I keep saying 1947 is 75 years ago? Well, the Oscar ceremony for the 1947 Oscars took place on March 20th, 1948, 11 days shy of being exactly 75 years ago tonight. There wasn't an adapted screenplay category in the traditional sense. There were three writing categories, and I'm unclear on exactly what the rules are, so we're just going to focus on the clearest one, and that is best original screenplay, and that is... Uh, where we begin and even this is a little unclear and i will get to that when we talk about should have been nominated but first we're going to deal with the nominees in front of us here there was a surprise winner in this category it was actually the very last classic we reviewed on the show we, there are two films from 1947 that we reviewed in the show including the very last one that jim was on episode 69.3 when we reviewed the bachelor and the bobby soxer which would win in this category does anybody say bachelor and bobby soxer should have won all right so in that sense jim you go first what should have won in this category
1: Uh, I went with A Double Life. It was a really interesting idea for a screenplay. I thought it was really well executed.
2: I just want to say that I'm not a big fan of the film. I think the primary issue of the film is it doesn't seem to really understand the mental condition, which I feel like is the linchpin of the plot. It feels made up and false to me, and the whole thing, to me, is is on tenuous ground. I feel like it wants to say something about the vulnerability of the artist, the emotional sacrifices they make to perfect their craft, but it really didn't make that land as a theme. Script structure-wise, I think it was a little sloppy. It didn't really handle his arc, the evolution of his illness, like in an interesting or meaningful way. I had a lot of issues with this film, particularly from a screenplay point of view. So I uh, I wasn't a fan. Devin, anything on A Double Life?
0: Yeah, I, I, um, I agree almost entirely with you, JB, and disagree <laughs> with, <laughs> with you, Jim. I found it sort of distasteful, almost romanticizing the idea of acting having to lean into psychosis for it to be great. I also agree, JB, that the execution felt inconsistent. Teetering towards melodrama at times, and yeah, I I wasn't really a fan of that film. This
2: almost feels like a mocking of this emerging movement in the world of acting. What we think of as method acting, Stanislavski, and, and like a lot of Hollywood people, and Ronald Coleman would be in that group. He started in the silent days. It's almost like mocking that concept uh, you know, to some degree in in a, you know, irresponsible and sloppy way, like, you know, almost uninformed kind of a way. I, I uh, Yeah, that, that, that's what I felt.
1: I don't think that it was irresponsible. I think we're looking at that anachronistically, looking back and saying that layering on they're mocking it.
2: First category, no clean sweep, at least in the should have won. Devin, what do you got? should have uh, won here. I have body and soul.
0: I really dug this film. Even though it had this sort of tried and true plot that we've seen before and seen many times since, I think it was a real testament to its overall execution as a script, among other things, that it hit some of those more typical story beats and yet still kept me very interested. Yes, it drifted occasionally into those less original places, but many, many more of the moments,
2: it felt like it transcended the genre, real quality writing, I have very mixed feelings about body and soul, but to me, it, the story is is the strength of the film. I think it's a good story within that well tried story. It's pretty well told. I do think that the ending is a bit of a cop out; like it feels disingenuous to me. That was a mark against it, and I, but I do feel like there's a lot of the execution that I had a lot of issues with. That is less to do with the screenplay. I do think that there's a lot of quality in the screenplay with an unoriginal story, but it's well told. And but the ending also felt wrong to me given the setup. Jim, Body and Soul.
1: I like the movie, but yeah, I think I just connected to Double Life more.
2: I, I would quickly rebut your
0: feeling about the ending, just in terms of my the way I received it. I thought that that was going to bother me as I saw it turning. In the end, I bought it. You know, this has been dark enough and tragic enough. I kind of bought him being able to make that decision
2: in the moment. By oh, age. I bought that. What I didn't and buy is the lack of repercussion from that. I think the implication is there very well might be. He might not last a week. The reason I think it's a screenwriting problem, and this is where we get to the nuance of screenwriting and storytelling, is I feel like they owed us an out. The repercussion thing or owed us like a way for him to escape that a little more narrowly. I hear what you're saying, like he may not last a week. That feels a little uncomfortably unresolved, almost, almost a similar cop-out. Like, but I mean, they had done a good job with raising the stakes, right? But maybe they raised them too much. It's almost like writing yourself into a corner when you're like, okay, how does he get out of this? It feels like, well, he just d- doesn't get out of it. It didn't bother me that that, that that was left unresolved. The reason why we don't have any crossover in this category is it, I presume that, you know, Jim already said he didn't watch it and uh, I presume Devin did not, didn't either watch the film that I chose. Um, you know, I did go with Shoeshine as the best original screenplay in this category. It's an excellent example of Italian neorealism at its best. It effectively paints the picture of how the economic situation of post-war Italy could lead to criminality and that, that bad dominoes can continue to follow after that. The other thing that seems to come out of the film is this code of toxic masculinity, even among preteen boys. The idea that integrity is more important than justice. and Interestingly, the so-called betrayal of the film comes out of a place of compassion. But that doesn't matter to the code. The story itself is nothing per se, almost a juvenile version of brute force. However, Cesare Zavattini and his collaborators capture the perspective of an otherwise voiceless community and puts on display their quiet desperation and utter lack of hope. It's a difficult but important film in that regard. It was my third favorite original screenplay of the year. Bachelor in the Bobby Soxer actually was fourth, right behind it. Either way, I had Bachelor in the Bobby Soxer ahead of both. Body and Soul and Double double Life, um, interestingly enough. But uh, Devin, I presume you did not see Shushan. I missed it. We're going to move on and just presume that I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to move on to should have been nominated, guys. And this is where it gets a little tricky. The way they worked, the studio system worked in 1947 is they had a story department and a screenplay department the story department would write a little treatment, like a two or three page thing. And then the screenplay department would then turn it into a screenplay, you know, whoever wrote the screenplay and that, you know, it sort of worked, uh, worked like that. And so they had a separate category for story and then they had a separate category for screenplay. And that screenplay category could be adapted from a story that the story department did like Miracle on 34th street, or it could be adapted from a book like great expectations. It was too vague these rules for us to really address. If uh, if it was an in-house story, that then became a screenplay, in a modern rules, those would qualify as original screenplays. We're gonna use modern rules, so a film like Miracle and 34th Street that was nominated in this weird story category would be eligible for original screenplay. So as we go into these should have been nominated, I want the audience to understand that is the parameters that we are using. But Devin, you do get to go first now that I've explained that. Uh, what uh, should have been nominated, uh, that was not.
0: I'm gonna go with Copacabana. It's not one of the more refined or polished screenplays to be sure. With such a breath of fresh air, some of the best one-liners I think in cinema history. Whoa! Why are you always chasing women? I'll tell you as soon as I catch one. Um, <laughs> and I think a good seven or eight other ones that were also at that level, though the story was not fantastic and the structure of the screenplay was not refined or or perfect. But just for the classic comedy bits
2: alone, this is a great contribution to the year. It didn't make my top five ultimately. It did surprise me in many ways. And and from a screenplay point of view, like I do think there's a a lot worthwhile here because I do think it's somewhat reverse engineered from the point of view of like, I don't want to say a hack screenwriter, but let's say a studio employed screenwriter, you know, that are churning these things out in assembly line, they're like, okay, write me a film about the Copacabana. It needs to have Groucho Marx and Carmen Miranda. Like, what? So working within those parameters, that's an achievement. Like, you know, what they managed to come up with. And I'm sure Groucho Marx's one-liners are all him. The story, to your point, is very silly, but it's also incredibly fun. And I think one of the more successful efforts of the year, I wish the songs were a little stronger, which has nothing to do with the screenplay per se. In spite of its slightness, I can't help but recommend the film if you're in the right frame of mind. It's fluff, but I laughed consistently and laughed out loud. Jim, Kobe Cabana.
1: You've pretty much said everything. It's super fun. It's incredibly funny. It's got Groucho Marks. Yeah, it's great.
2: What do you have for should have been nominated for Best Original Screenplay?
1: The the choice that I went with was um, actually one of the rare, rare noirs with rays of sunshine in it, which was Johnny O'Clock.
2: Also from director Robert Rosen. I actually referred to it earlier when I said The director of Body and Soul had a better film from 1947 and it's Johnny O'Clock.
1: I was really surprised with how much I liked this film. It was a good story, but it had really interesting characters. Nobody really did anything stupid. Most noir, there's one, there's, there's a moment where they, a really bad decision. everybody acted with thought and reason and nobody really made a misstep. Maybe uh, a little bit of hubris got them in a little bit more trouble than it should have. But I take hubris over stupidity any day.
2: It's another noir from a prominent director early in their careers. And it's one of the darkest ones yet. And perhaps uh-huh. the best script of the bunch. It was excellent. Yep. I said the dialogue crackles with Rosen's trademark combination of cynicism and wit. The Plot isn't over complex, but it's passable and interesting. Mrs. Marquez's obsession with Johnny was a bit of a bump for me. I feel like it needed to be a little more developed and perhaps some gray areas needed to be in there to feel more real or interesting. This movie becomes about masculinity in a way. And you talked about hubris and I think that there's some crossover there. And the danger of the lack of vulnerability that was otherwise lionized in male characters of the era. Guido and Charlie too have their masculinity threatened and they pay the price for trying to live up to that model. And so maybe Johnny O'Clock did have something to say after all, in an interesting way. It's not as natural fit with the formatter genre almost as if Rosen was trying to sneak it in there, this this sort of exploration of masculinity. Devin, did you see Johnny O'Clock? I sure did. And I agree with you guys. I liked it
0: a lot. Very clear, very realistic characters for what could have been more of a B-movie, what could have been more caricatureish. And I thought it had a clear thematic resolution as well about what masculinity is supposed to be. I thought it was interesting that it ended up in a place of kind of vulnerability.
2: We talk about the stoic manly type that populate these movies, but the ending and Evelyn Key's character seem to suggest the hypocrisy of that facade. Yeah. I do think there is a flatness to Johnny. Like in terms of, from a screenwriting point of view, There's a, he's like two dimensional. In spite of some feeble attempts to outline a backstory, I feel like for John for Johnny himself, I feel like we needed a little more meat on that bone.
1: I do see what you're saying about Johnny being kind of f- a flat character, because one of my n- other notes was, all of the other characters really have better hooks, more interesting backstories, whereas Johnny is more of, I-, I dress nice and I don't gamble, but I manage this thing and also I'm great. But, you know, you surround him with really interesting characters acting on him.
2: It wasn't until I started working on the script that I realized the overlap in my choices for should have won and should have been nominated in this category. Of course, I chose Shoeshine for should have won. And it's not like I'm obsessed with prison dramas or anything, but my choice for best original screenplay is indeed brute force. I found it to be a deeply humanistic screenplay. Prison movies are a dime a dozen, but to me, literally might be the best prison movie I've ever seen. What impresses me most is the balance of character and plot and the combination of intelligent discourse and thrilling action. It definitely follows many characters and paints a rich tapestry of pain, regret, hope, and also the death of hope. I spoke earlier about the films of 1947 that called for compassion, and in a much darker way, that's true here. His call for compassion and rehabilitation is a more desperate, pleading one. Some top-notch, borderline revelatory work for me, and I can now reveal that it is my third Favorite film of 1947. Jim is very excited to talk about
1: Brute Force. Yes, it really is a fabulous screenplay. I do 100% agree with you. It's really great characters. Solid motivations for all of them. A really good story. Good reasons behind what they're doing and why they're doing. It is a really wonderful movie. Devin, never heard of it.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, that is Best Original Screenplay. It is time to move on to the acting categories, which will be interesting because I've got a couple actors here. One of them is very good at it. And so first category. <laughs> see what I did there? So we're starting with Best Supporting Actor. Out of these five nominees, I have one of them in my top five, and we'll get to that shortly. The winner would be Edmund Gwen, who's the answer to my annual trivia question about the only person to win an Oscar for playing a saint. It's a bit of a trick question, but always a fun one. Of course, Edmund Gwen plays Santa Claus in the Miracle on 34th Street. We reviewed Miracle on 34th Street in uh, episode Uh, 21.3. Does anybody want to make the case for Edmund Gwen? I don't have Edmund Gwen. Does anybody want to say Edmund
1: Gwen should have won? I will make the case for Edmund Gwen.
2: All right. So you you (laughs) chose Edmund Gwen. Go ahead, Jim. Take it away. The
1: the case that I have for Edmund Gwen is he was the absolute perfect person to play that particular role at that time. Uh, He infuses Santa Claus with all of the exact things that we all hope and wish Santa Claus to really be. And he brought to that role a legendary, like mythological persisting presence as Saint Nick. Edwin Gwen as an actor is probably fine. I think this just happened to be a stars perfectly aligned for him moment.
2: I think you made a really good point in that Edwin Gwen is not in my mind, a good actor historically, however, I had him in my top five for a long time, so he'd probably be at six. He just got knocked off fairly recently, you know, in the last couple of days. To be fair, it's iconic. This is an iconic performance, and when I think of Santa Claus, I think of what Edmund Gwen created, and there's something to that. And you know, that that mentality factors into one of my choices in a later category. So like, there is something to that. There just was a performance that was so grounded to me. You know, I went another direction. I don't disagree, but he he wound up not making my top five. Devin, anything you like to add about Em and Gwen? No, I just agree with what you guys just said. Gosh, is there a possibility Devin and I will have some overlap here? Um, I wonder, Devin, who did you choose that should have won out of these five actors?
0: Charles Bickford for a Farmer's Daughter. Okay, we do not agree, tell me why. I thought that Charles Bickford had just a wonderful realistic vulnerability uh, underneath what's otherwise a very facade based kind of character. He was just very carefully telling
2: the story for us whenever he was on screen. I mean like Charles Bickford's a great actor. His better performance of the year is actually Jim in
1: Brute Force?
2: <laughs> brute Force. He's he's excellent in Brute Force. He didn't even register to me. It's almost a smaller role that that he's worthy of. I'm surprised he was nominated for this. And obviously, I thought you know Brute Force he could have been nominated for. He didn't make my top five though in Brute Force. Jim, you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean the, the the thing that he provides for the farmer's daughter is he's the straight man, right? He he grounds everybody else, I think, in a way. And I, and I do think he gives a solid performance. It is not a flashy performance, but it, it just allows everybody else to get a little bit looser with theirs. He's oh. just a
2: great actor. Like he's just, especially in 1947, when not everybody's a great actor, like yeah. he's just, that's what acting looks like. I think there was just a quiet beauty to what he pulled off. Once again, for the second category in a row, we're gonna have three different choices. And I'm a little bummed because Devin and I did watch this film together. And I didn't actually realize this guy was nominated. He was on my top five. And I assumed he wasn't going to come up tonight. And then I saw he was nominated this morning. And I was like, hey, I've got in my top five. Coming in at number four Best Supporting Actors of the Year. Um, And that is Thomas Gomez for Ride the Pink Horse. Gomez, to me, was not only a standout in the film itself, which has a handful of weak performances. But he's also a standout among similar kind of roles in movie history. The Latin sidekick kind of character. He's significantly more grounded and honest than those other flat and almost offensive characters. Gomez breathes life and backstory and dimension to this character. So I think it's a notable achievement. I actually loved him and was surprised. It's a character you see a lot and I'm surprised by how much he made that character real and honest and grounded, elevating the writing to some degree. So I was really impressed with Thomas Gomez, my fourth favorite supporting actor of the year. I thought he was very good. There were
0: a couple of moments that, that um that didn't feel fully true for me. Um, so yeah, he didn't strike me as as who should have taken the award, but um, but overall, strong.
2: I thought it was some real acting, you know? Like, and there's a lot of real acting in that movie. He definitely except- he had some real acting in it, yeah. Um, Jim, anything about Thomas Gomez in Ride the Pink Horse?
1: I did not see the movie, so I cannot comment.
2: <laughs> so it should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Um, and yeah, we're not gonna have agreement here probably. Because um, uh, mine's a little more obscure. But Jim, what do you got for who should have been nominated for best supporting actor that was not?
1: Best supporting actor uh, should have been nominated. I have Hume Cronin from Brute Force.
2: I wish I could show my top five. I have Hume Cronin as second.
1: First, let's talk about the casting. You have a five foot six Cronin against six foot two Lancaster and still being able to be threatening. Like he's shorter than I think most of the lead and supporting actors in there, and still the most menacing and scary character. The easy way out would have been to do something like Mark's crazy. And instead, Cronin is quiet. He knows he's not going to physically intimidate these people. And the choices in acting go with that. He pulls back, he's smart and he's cunning and he's cruel. And all of these things are in there and you see them and he never has to force that. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and and I think one of the most effective, the most effective villain that I saw all year.
2: So I wrote Hume Cronin, however, was outstanding as the sadistic Warren, Up there with Nurse Ratchet in terms of film villains. The Doctor character did a lot of the exposition of the character for us, but we didn't need him to because Cronin had done all the work. He is a man small of stature, but was still intimidating, and that's all in their performance. Very much echoing a lot of what you said about his height, but the way he still manages to make it work in a meaningful way. Devin didn't see this movie, didn't see my movie, so let's see what he chose for, should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor of 1947.
0: I'm going with Francis Sullivan in Great Expectations. That deeper, complicated, pragmatic man with strong sense of the world's absurdity. He is, always doing something, you can tell there's that strong awareness all the time behind his eyes of exactly what the circumstances are.
2: I thought it was a good performance. Very believable and, and very thorough as Jagger, so I don't disagree. There are a number of performances that I that I put above that. Anything on Francis L. Sullivan in Great Expectations, Jim?
1: No, I, I agree with Devin. It was a solid, it's a really good performance.
2: So I'm gonna move on to my choice, which is unlikely a movie that you, that you guys saw, but um, but maybe because I did send it to y'all. Um, I had Thomas Gomez as my should have won and I have another Thomas as should have been nominated and my choice for best supporting actor of the year overall. He had already won an Oscar in this category by this time for his legendary performance in Stagecoach. But in the Romance of Rosie Ridge, Thomas Mitchell gives a tremendous performance as a loving, emotionally wounded father. Emotionally wounded by the Civil War that left him with a mountain of hate and distrust with anyone that fought for or supported the North. Most films that deal with the era of reconstruction think about it from the point of view of infrastructure instead of the residual rage that couldn't be turned off like a light switch. This film does that perhaps captured most effectively by Mitchell's performance. He navigates the film's primary character arc in a way that elicits such empathy for a Southerner whose positions came from a place of racism. Mitchell also masters the technical aspects of the role, the language, the accent, the physicality. He's barely recognizable from *Stagecoach* or even gone with the wind. I think it's surprising, beautiful work in the film that was one of my two biggest surprises of the whole project and probably the only one that's going to come on tonight. It's my number four favorite film of 1947. Huge prize. Had not heard of it much before. A huge reason why I loved it is the performance by Thomas Mitchell in The Romance of Rosie Ridge. Jim, have you seen this film? I did not. Devin, have you seen this film? No. As I predicted, they had not seen it, which means we can move on, right? Woo! Yep. Best supporting actors, I believe, of 19. 19- 47, and in this particular case, um, there's some good actors nominated for some weird roles. I have zero of these five in my top five. I can't really explain these nominees. I, I can't really explain this win for Celeste Home either. Perhaps it was part of an overall affection for a film that would go on to win it all. Does anybody want to make the case for Celeste Holm as their choice for should have won?
1: I have her as should have won. All right. She brought life to Gentleman's Agreement. She brought a wit and sparkle to it. Anytime she was on screen in that movie, she was the most interesting thing. I don't know if that speaks to the deficits of Gentleman's Agreement or the strengths of Celeste Holm. But for me and the performances that I saw in that category, she she was the best.
2: It's a rough category to be sure. Um, uh, I to me it speaks to the deficits of *Gentlemen's Agreement*. <laughs> like, you're, yeah. she's fine for me. Like, I felt like it was too small of a role comparatively. Devin, what do you got on Celeste Hall?
0: I thought she was really great. I didn't go with her as as should have won, um, but not by a lot. I thought that she expertly drove the comic relief in a, a movie that needed it, and also was strong when her character took that turn and became more of a dramatic part of the plot in the, in the final act. She didn't strike me as, as number one.
2: Devin, what do you got for uh, who should have won Best Supporting Actress? I went with Gloria Graham.
0: She really transcended the genre, transcended what is normally called for in that type of role. She dove all the way in to the reality of it and to the detail of it and to the indignation of it, it kept surprising me. She's not just grounding it, she's making bold, interesting choices.
2: Gloria Graham is an all time, like she might be top 10 favorite actress for me, like historically, like I love Gloria Graham. I I was pretty sure I was gonna pick her when we started this project. When rewatching it with you the other day, I was feeling that for the first three quarters of the performance. And I just felt like, especially towards the end of the performance, I felt there was like enough bumps like and it just felt like it was a young actor who hadn't quite figured out some shit yet still working on their craft and when things when she got pushed i felt like she started she started to push she started to force some things and so when evaluating a couple of the performances like i was like i i think i need to go with this other performance and it was a good performance most of the time until it wasn't for me personally and that made me go in a different direction. Jim, Gloria Graham, and Crossfire.
1: So Gloria Graham was my second choice. I I think she did make some really interesting choices.
2: I mean, like, yeah, up until
0: a point. I didn't notice her performance weakening in in the final quarter. If anything, I interpreted some of those quirks as being character choices more than an actor missing certain
2: beats. I would say that I guess those choices didn't work for me or didn't feel as as grounded as some of the other ones. I decided to go for a more comprehensive performance and also kind of iconic. Um and, and this is, you know, what I was talking about Emin Gwend a little bit in his creation of Santa Claus. Obviously I think we all have issues with this movie, but for me Marjorie Main's creation of the Ma Kettle character is really iconic, so thorough and successful that it spawned a spin-off series of nine other films that featured Ma and Pa Kettle. I understand it's a comedic performance, but I feel like it's a pretty complete characterization, almost akin to Johnny Depp in the original Pirates of the Caribbean, in the sense that it was just so full, it's kind of a scene stealer without her trying too hard, relying on her character work. So for the invention, for the excellent comedic timing, the detail, I opted to go with the Marjorie Maine here in The Egg and I.
0: I liked Marjorie Maine's performance. I thought that she did give it a solid foundation in what could have been more stereotypical Didn't hit the same level for me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I hear that, but I mean, I also don't like to discount comedic performances sometimes. And, you know, even though it's a comedic performance, I just saw craft in Marjorie Maine's performance and and just a, a lot of detail that she's adding. To, you know, like what could have been, to your point, a stereotypical character, Jim.
1: Marjorie Main also benefited from the screenwriters liking her character because they gave her small touches that really humanized her and gave her depth in a way that... Podcast- she executed
2: them. She executed them. And
1: she, she took them like the cookies. There's a plainness and simpleness to her performance that I did really, really like.
2: So it's time to move on who should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress of 1947. See what Devin has to say. I kind of wanted to give
0: this to an actor in Heaven Only Knows of all films. Georgia Curtwright. Wow. something... It perfectly captured the shell-shocked weariness of the time that we were talking about in the in the opening with a dash of, of bittersweet hope. I kept seeing all of that in her eyes and it was not on the page. She was was really taking that on and deepening it. And I, I really was admiring that and was consistently surprised by it.
2: It's a small role, so I didn't like shortlist it, but I remember noticing her and being like, she's doing some, Oddly good work in a film with some not so good actors. It's one of those performances that made me think I'm interested. Why don't I not know this actor? Why do I not see more of this actor? Not large enough of a role or impactful enough for me to shortlist.
1: Jim. Didn't, didn't see the movie.
2: Who did you have? Should have been nominated for this premier?
1: So I'm a little bit worried about this because I have a feeling it's either going to, you're either going to agree with me or it's going to be a role that people are going to be like, it was too much. With Kathleen Byron and Black Narcissus.
2: And it is my second favorite supporting actress performance of 1947. Yeah,
1: the mirror to Deborah Kerr's sister, Clodagh, a portrait of a woman unraveling. She has to be that big. We have to see those big emotions to contrast Kerr's withholding, to see the depths of where Clodagh could go to. Every single time she was on the screen, she gave something different. Every single tick, every single emotion, you could read absolutely clearly on, on her face. An amazing performance.
2: I think it's some great work. Be argued that it's too much, but I, like I, to me, it's pitch perfect. Exactly what it needed to be. And this person that is breaking down in, in a significant way. Great counterpoint to Robert, Ronald Coleman in Double Life in the sense that it did feel to me that the mental illness was, a, was more defined. Script doesn't need to call it out. I just need to sense it. It feels like the actor did the work to like figure out what this is and its origins and how it broke down. I do get some extraordinary work and crucial to the film that gives me the opportunity to ask Devin why didn't you choose Kathleen Byron? It's a game of inches. I can see why you're both saying
0: what you're saying and I don't think that she was false. I think she was grounding even her extreme maneuvers and you have to know when you're in close up. You have to know when the makeup artist is, is doing certain parts of it for you. This performance was hurt
2: a lot by both of those things. From a directing point of view, it was what they wanted. Like, it was exactly what they wanted, and exact, to me, exactly what the film needed. Which it became too broad
0: because of the fact that when a performer's on screen, it's, it's not just the performer, it is what's happening with the lens and what's happening with the makeup And so it it didn't work for me. It did feel to me that it was in concert.
1: Obviously I I agree more with you than Devin. I didn't didn't find it too broad. I think that's just, that's the taste line between us. For me, it was right up against that line where it played. But
2: that's the best part. You know, it's the high risk, high reward kind of situation. When it flirts to the line and doesn't cross it and it's a subjective thing. But when it's, to me, like that elevates it when it's like flirts to the line, but doesn't cross it. That to me is 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 real skill, and still I did not choose it because I saw this other performance coming up. That's my segue, guys. I don't know if you uh, saw that coming. I thought it was pretty smooth. Um, smooth. But my choice is someone who um, was nominated in this category as part of our 1942 interview, and someone we featured in a sound off segment we named in honor of Jim called.
1: What's your bucket?
2: What's their bucket? Yes, the segment in which we spotlight character actors, and the first female character that we featured was none other than Agnes Moorhead. Uh, my, My choice here. She eerily disappears into a character over 100 years old, and it's not just the makeup, in a film called The Lost Moment. Her range seems to be limitless as she completely captures the haunting regret that grows exponentially with each passing year of her frail existence. Simultaneous emotional pain and physical pain in an extremely evocative way. Another powerhouse performance by an actor seemingly way ahead of her time and perhaps even underappreciated today as she remains best known for her television work in Bewitched. I don't suppose either of you saw The Lost Moment from director Martin Gable. All right. That means we can move right along, guys. They don't get to argue with me um, about the magnificence that is Agnes Moorhead that I managed to love even more than uh, Kathleen Byron. All right. So time to talk about some leading categories. And we'll see you getting heated here for Best Actress. I have, once again, zero of these five nominees in my top five actresses of the category. And this is another category I can't really explain. I would even qualify two of these performances as really, really bad. Rosalind Russell campaigned really hard and was the predicted winner in all polls for Morning Becomes Electra. As the story goes, she was halfway out of her seat, when Frederick March read Loretta Young's name instead for The Farmer's Daughter. But Russell saved face by turning her standing into an ovation for Young. Pretty smooth stuff. That's my tidbit. Does anybody want to make the case for Loretta Young and The Farmer's Daughter? Oh, no. for 2. That means Devin goes first. Who should have won in this category? This is a rough category. Um, I, you know, I,
0: I didn't think that this was a flawless performance, but of the nominees,
2: um, I, I decided to go with Dorothy McGuire. We have definitely. not had any crossover yet uh, tonight, but for the first time in a in a in a and if you told me when I uh, uh, when I started this project that I would choose *Gentlemen's Agreement* in any category, I would have <laughs> not believed you. Um, but I also chose Dorothy McGuire out of these five nominees in this very rough category, and I sort of switched at the last moment. And I've been critical about this performance in the past, but mathematically speaking, it occurred to me that out of these five. Dorothy McGuire had the least amount of false or over-the-top moments in her performance in *Gentlemen's Agreement. She had a number of nice moments to balance out some of the cringeworthy ones that Devin sort of referred to. And I give her credit for playing what could be characterized as the film's de facto antagonist. And I recognize that a lot of her lesser moments were handicapped by pedantic, overwritten dialogue. The moments where she is casually surprised by essentially being called out as prejudice, especially early on, are actually quite nuanced. Then she has to push it over the top, but in terms of ratio... This one is a little stronger for me than the others by a hair. Um, so that's why I've got, I agree with Devin, Darth McGuire. I don't know if, um, if anything I said resonates for you, Devin. Yeah, I
0: mean, the the idea that in, in a way, some of the moments that I felt were flaws or imperfections um, kind of felt right in the sense that, you know, her character was, in a sense, the antagonist in certain ways. And um, it's one of the, most interesting parts of the film that she slowly, ever so gradually, becomes that antagonist because she was supposed to be not the perfect facade that her
2: character otherwise would have outside of these circumstances. That might be overstating it for me, but I hear you what you're saying. Jim, anything on Dorothy McGuire?
1: Do you want me to, to go ahead with my pick? Only um, if it's any... Dorothy McGuire. Well, task failed successfully. It's Dorothy McGuire.
2: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is our first Random, like lesser of all the evils, clean sweep of the evening. I do not believe that Darth <laughs> McGuire is the one that we all agree on. It's a good performance, it's good, it's, performance, but it it is good feel, enough.
1: Yeah, I um, mean that's that's really what it is, right? It's the I guess pick. <laughs> There's an interesting track there. I thought she did it fine. I think overall the character is kind of a drip. So yeah, I mean that's that's where we're at. It
2: is a clean sweep with prejudice, I suppose, so to speak. So it's time for us to move on to should have been nominated, and I am. Uh, I think there is a very good possibility we could have cro- some crossover here, and gosh, possibly even our first ever. I don't. I, it's a weird. Th- it's a terrible thing to possibly predict, but possibly our first ever clean sweep in a should have been nominated situation. I wonder. If that's possible, Jim, you are the first step in making that happen. Who should have been nominated for this that was not?
1: So I went with Jean Tierney for Ghost of Mrs. Muir*. I'm sorry if that breaks your heart, Jonathan.
2: It doesn't, it doesn't, in the sense that it, it's not a clean sweep. But Jean Tierney is my fifth favorite uh, Best Actress of 1947. I think it was an excellent performance.
1: She gave the spirited performance. She carved out exactly the kind of character where you can see why she's attracted to this this ghost of a sea captain. And I also think it was believable when she started to doubt herself. Jean Tierney played that uncertainty so well that I was there with her. It's a really delicate thing to play. I thought overall, a wonderful performance.
2: Historically, Jean Tierney was the pretty face, right? Like she was like the hot girl and not really considered an actress. And I don't remember her being this good. I think this actually outdoes her nominated performance in Leave Her to Heaven. She creates a complete character who seems to melt before our eyes. Not to mention the very believable work she does as the older character. She's surprisingly good. In other movies that I love that she's in, like Laura, She doesn't get to explore things as deeply, but I thought she was very, very strong and a complete, she really dug into the character elements of this character. So I I think it's great, top five for me, really strong work. Devin's nodding a lot, I wonder if he picked this. Devin, Jean Tierney in Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Yeah,
0: I mean, I'm gonna turn that back on you, JB, and say (laughs) I did go with Gene Tierney in this. It was a very interesting portrayal, and she did have a tough line to walk uh, to make the film play on multiple levels in the end. And she did transcend, you know, certain elements of what what could have been, uh, or what in some moments was a more facile kind of film. She was just consistently really interesting with what she was doing and bold. And um, yeah, I I, I had her as, I I was very surprised that that she was not included.
2: We all liked her and like, I I don't have a lot of quibbles about the performance. I just have. Performances I thought were were a little stronger, and and so my choice. The reason I thought it might be that we might have a shot at a clean sweep is you all saw this movie, and I actually think it's not only the best performance of the year. I actually think it's the greatest performance of the decade for me. Deborah Kerr's performance Mr. as Sister Clodagh is absolutely extraordinary. The subtle way she allows the cracks of desire and regret to seep through the officious exterior, one that she feels that she needs to put on for respect, to prove herself to her colleagues and Mr. Dean and the general as one of the younger sister superiors. I think it's a deliciously complex role that she absolutely knocks out of the park. I thought we all were gonna be on this bandwagon because it's just exquisite, exquisite work in Black narcissists.
1: So at the end of the day, it was between Gene Tierney and Deborah Kerr. It was an incredibly hard decision. And I kept going back and forth between them. And I'm, I, I kind of count their performances uh, equally good to me.
0: Devin, Deborah Kerr. I, I liked her performance very much. And it's almost like the opposite of what I feel happened with our last discussion on this. Close-ups and other directorial flourishes that, that were very performance specific helped Deborah Kerr, I felt. And so I it didn't feel entirely hurt. Uh, it felt like I was I was loving a lot of what was happening, but it felt like I was loving the, what the directors were doing.
2: Okay, I, I don't, it's a hard distinction to make. Final performance category here, time for best actor. And once again, what the heck is going on with this category? But I've got zero of these five in my top five. The winner would be Ronald Coleman. Actors love to reward actors for playing actors is my theory for this particular movie. Does anyone want to make the case for Ronald Coleman? No. Well, here's my prediction. These guys are going to agree on who should have won, and I'm gonna differ. Um, so I think I know who they're both gonna pick. And Jim, tell me that I'm right.
1: I, I mean, I went with John Garfield I for, am right. for Body and Soul. I just think he's interesting whenever he gets on screen. Choice work that he did was really good. I think he really brought a physicality to that role that was needed.
2: And I feel like Devin's going to go in the same direction. I think John Garfield is out of these five ahead of the curve in terms of the evolution of acting. He doesn't ring true to me in this movie. He's close, but he's a little shy. There was just enough of the two dimensional boxer with greed thing. It didn't quite land for me at all in body and soul. Devin, my prediction is you also went with John Garfield.
0: Here's what I put in my notes because I have no other choice. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go with John Garfield. It's, it's almost like he overshot with dumbing him down, dumbing the character down, and didn't realize that he had done so until it was too late. And, and, and these actresses were kind of acting circles around him. There was none better of the nominees, I
2: thought. I'm gonna disagree a little bit. I very much like, don't worry about whether or not I like the movie to acknowledge a performance. I tend to separate them. Like there was enough false moments in Body and Soul and John Garfield's performance in uh, Body and Soul that, that that pushed me away from that towards a movie that I didn't really enjoy. Um, but, you know, I felt like all the performances were over the top uh, to some degree. And so for me, I felt like uh, William Powell's creation of the pompous particular father in Life with Father is at least the most comprehensive, almost similar to the way Marjorie Main created her character as Ma Kettle. In the 30s, Powell was more of a personality than an actor, so between this and The Senator Was Indiscreet, another film he did from 1947, it was interesting to see him at least flex his character muscles late in his career. The writing and staging of the film was extremely theatrical to me, but I have to admit, he dove into it and went balls to the wall. It's a little over the top at times, but it's an over-the-top character, like I said, almost like Marjorie Maine as Ma Kettle. The voice, the bodywork, the choices all seem to be in concert with one another, and in a category of five performances that I didn't really like that much, that put it over the top for me. For as many broad moments as he has, he has several nice moments as his heart and goodness find ways to seep through the closed-mindedness. Given the episodic nature of the piece, that happened a few times, but he navigated them well and, to me, was believable. As silly as a lot of the movie is, I laughed often enough, almost in spite of myself. So, again, I have to give some credit to his comedic timing and choices that he made to his performance. It's not great work. It's uh, I think it's pretty good in an extremely lackluster category at best. I want to avoid Devin, so I'll let Jim respond first.
1: No, I mean – I. I don't disagree with much of what you're saying. The, and That's why I went with you first. Like, I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. I think he definitely added to the film. I think at the end of the day, I just went with John Garfield more. I think I just identified a little bit more with that performance.
0: Yeah, yeah I, I hear what you're saying. I do sometimes factor in, not hugely, but I do factor in my overall feeling for the film. Um, and uh, which is part of what put John Garfield over the top here for me. But I hear what you're saying about William Powell's work, and you know it is solid and consistent. So
2: I hear that. We're going to move on to what should nominated for best actor. Devin, what do you got? I went with Robert Young in Crossfire. It's obviously
0: understated, but I just was so there. I mean, he really just had me. There are moments when that screenplay gets a little overwritten. And yet he weathered that monologue, man, and pulled it off and kept it totally real. And he also just throughout, gave it a surprising amount of heart. I found really compelling and I I thought was was worthy of a nomination.
2: You know, even when we disagreed, they've been close to agreements so far tonight. This is gonna be more of a hard disagree in the sense that a couple of things you said, I I do think he missed the monologue for me personally. And I think overall, it was a little put on the whole performance. Um, And so it, it sort of, rung false to me on top of that i don't even feel like if it is the leading performance um you know as well so that and that's my opinion i
1: think i'm maybe like right in between you two i thought it was fine it's it's an interesting tack but I, I i would definitely think of him more as a supporting character
0: he struck a chord with me um it could just be you know a specific affinity i have for um
2: For his presence on screen so all right so i think we've said what we're going to say about robert young jim you went in a different direction what do you got
1: for best actor i went in a very different direction and i went in probably the most boring direction i could have because i went with rex harrison for ghost and mrs mirror playing a rough and crusty and curmudgeonly old sea captain is one thing but to then give him enough heart and charisma that you can get through that and still understand why she loves him. The vulnerability that he lets Miss Muir come into that is a wonderful progression through that. That monologue uh, that he gives before he goes away is heartbreaking and amazing. I'm also another really hangs on the monologue person.
2: <laughs> In my notes, like after I talk about how good Gene Tierney is, I'm like, Rex Harrison is a little much, but just by a hair. That's all that I wrote. <laughs> I'm not that into Rex Harrison in this movie. There's enough moments that I'm like, dial it down, dude. For me personally. <laughs> but Devin, you're going to break the tie, I
0: I slightly more agree with JB on this one. In the second half, he did grow on. Me. There were enough things in the first half that just didn't feel strong enough, grounded enough.
1: Sort of questioning where he is and what he's doing in that first half, in the few, first few scenes that he's in. I think that is the right reaction.
2: Your point is that's part of the design of the performance. I, I think I
1: think it's designed that way.
2: Some disagreement there. So I'm going to move on with my, should have been nominated for Best Actor. That was not. Um, and it's, it's probably a movie they did not see. So like, uh, so, you know, that, that they'll make this quick potentially. Uh, when we did our 1959 in review, my choice for best actress was a young Haley Mills for a film called Tiger Bay. When we did our 1970 in review, uh, the winner of Best Supporting Actor the Oscar was her father, John Mills, for his work in Ryan's Daughter. Though none of us on that show felt he deserved it. But once again, we returned to the Mills family and John himself as my choice for best actor for of the year for his work in the melodrama So Well Remembered. Not only is he charismatic in this magnetic leading performance, but he's also powerful. He makes George's naivete just as believable as his maturation. He also manages the aging better than anyone else in the accomplished cast. It doesn't have the bells and whistles and histrionics of many noteworthy performances of the era, but he makes George relatable, real, complete, and thus worthy of our emotional investment. It was a big surprise for me and a movie that wasn't amazing, it's, it's a bit sprawling, but it's a very comprehensive performance and I was just really impressed with a lot of his choices. Obviously a lot of you know him for, as Pip in Great Expectations, but this performance is the one that landed for me. Did anybody see So Well Remembered? All right, told you. And uh, <laughs> we, so we can move right along. Time for Best Direction, and once again, I've got zero of these five in my top five directors. The winner was Ilya Kazan. Be the first of two Best director officers for Kazan, he would win again seven years later for On the Waterfront. Does anybody wanna make the case where Ilya Kazan is Best Director of 1947?
0: Yes, my main reasons are things that are usually aspects of direction that you particularly are always emphasizing, JP in terms of scene work, consistently excellent, as are the details that are peripheral to the main premise. You know, the elephant in the room, of course, is the central subject matter itself and how that's dealt with. Kazan's treatment of it was not perfect. Treating that kind of subject matter perfectly is almost impossible. Kazan did a remarkably sophisticated job of addressing those things. In terms of how I felt we were being held by the director over the course of this film,
2: I felt very well held. One thing about scene work that Ilya Kazan would get much better at, because he could handle the blocking, but it's about the relationship between the blocking and the shot choices. And he hadn't quite get there yet. Majority of the shots are, are master in coverage. He has yet to find some of the cinema language that he would develop. There's never a question about his relationship with actors and his ability to direct actors. One of those rare things in film history that's indisputable. Where the film lacks is a true sense of cinematicism. For me, in this film, he doesn't quite get there.
1: Jim? I put a lot of the the problems of Gentleman's Agreement with the script.
2: 1,000%.
1: I think Ilya Kazan did a fine job. I don't know how you dig yourself out as a director when you have two leads who you're stuck with and you don't really one and and a script that has a lot of problems with it. I don't know how you can really shine, you know, with that many handicaps on you.
0: But in that final half hour, when it's in the director's hands to kind of take this to the finish line in a way that, that works or doesn't,
2: I feel like he did overcome some of those obstacles. I need him to use the camera in a less theatrical way um, for me personally. But Jim, you did not choose Ilya Kazan. What did you choose that should have won here out of these five?
1: I went with um, David Lean with uh, Great Expectations. Revisiting it still had all of that power. And I thought there was a a real sweeping epicness really worked for me. In a different director's hands maybe would have lost some of that sweep. Does that make sense?
2: Not only does it make sense, Devin wanted to talk about scene work and one of the best at it all time is David Lean. I also have David Lean uh, here for Great Expectations. It's the director that was the one that Zach chose as should have been nominated in the 1970 review for Ryan's Daughter and was on my top five for that year. I'm not sure anybody does Dickens better than Lean, but then again, there aren't many that do filmmaking better than Lean. And it's all the things, keeping the dense, sprawling, interconnected elements of Dickens together in his storytelling, but also the shot choices that are almost always evocative and motivated, interesting without calling too much attention to themselves. The film manages to be cinematic at all times, whether it being comedic, dramatic, romantic, or even an action scene. The film is way more advanced to me than any of the nominees, and, and it didn't even make my top five in terms of direction. He's one of my all-time favorite directors, though. You know, I think it's some really strong work, extremely cinematic, and I do think the scene work is really really strong and I think Devin you even called out some of the stuff with Jaggers and the way that Lean shoot Jaggers I think is is interesting and unique and helps um, elevate that performance Devin Jim and I are in agreement with this what do you have to say about David Lean and great expectations
0: you know no uh no disagreement there he's extremely strong and it's a tough sprawling Piece to make work
2: and he makes it work. Jim, who should have been nominated in this category that was not?
1: We're not going to have agreement because I'm going to take a, a fairly controversial one. I disliked almost every other part of this movie. However, um, I went with Charlie Chaplin and Monsieur Verdoux for direction because I think this is the one thing <laughs> that he did really well with this picture. There's a lot of issues with the rest of it. He dances with that camera. You look at the first scene with the family and the way that camera moves, he has a facility in making sure that you know exactly what you are supposed to focus on at any given time. He's guiding you, making things very clear, where the poison is, how it's getting there, who's drinking what, you know it. I appreciated that.
2: Like I'm a big Charlie Chaplin fan. For the most part, this, lacked a lot of the grace that um you know a lot of his other films we you know very famously review the great dictator on the show back in episode 12.3 film's interesting in a couple different ways as you might expect but like i think it failed from a directing point of view in the sense that he doesn't quite achieve the tonal balance between message and comedy themes and satire the way that the great dictator does the way that City Lights does, the way that Modern Times does. It seems like he was trying to do that and didn't really get there. It seems to shift uncomfortably between Pathos and Slapstick. That's something that he used to be able to accomplish. And it was like amazing that he could do it. To me, only one or two shots stood out as inspired. I think everything is a little heightened, especially Martha Ray's much beloved performance that I didn't enjoy. I don't find the film or performance or his performance that amusing or in keeping with the rest of the film. Sometimes it's vaudeville and sometimes it's satire. Chaplin is a brilliant man, but sometimes even some of his frustrated, cynical, high-minded ideas comes off as a bit as a bit muddled for me in this movie. So um, you know, like there are some. To me, there are some good things, but uh, the direction, strangely, was not actually one of them. Devin, Monsieur Vaudou. I missed it, unfortunately.
1: I think it was the directing that kept me watching and and kept me interested in this kind of a kind of a mess of a movie
2: In since all those things you're talking about are direction like tonal the tone is the responsibility of the director and i understand he's the writer actor director so where where do you draw the line right you know, here <laughs> we're saying that point of view but certainly like like in, you know like if you're looking at it from a very general perspective tone is direct responsibility you know in the sense that the director is the one that's there for every scene the tonal shifts i Chalk up to direction you know and and so he's doing all the things to me he went wrong in a, in a lot of them he had some good choices and he had some choices that didn't work and enough choices that didn't work to keep him off the list for me Devin who should have been nominated that was not for best director
0: Powell and Pressburger for Black Narcissus just a remarkable directorial achievement in so many ways despite the the minor misgivings, you know, that I expressed earlier in, in, a, in another category. I mean, you mentioned tone a moment ago. The haunting tone that is established in that film is one of the most memorable cinematic tones that's ever been established.
2: It's, it's pretty great. My choice for Beck's director that should be nominated was basically second place for me when we did our 1942 in review five years ago. Um, So it gives me great pleasure to finally call out the masterful work of Michael Powell in Black Narcissus. So I am in agreement. I know they are credited together as producing, writing, directing. You know, having studied them for many years, I can tell you that technically speaking, Michael Powell is the director and Emmerich Pressburger is a co-writer and the producer. It's one of the, to me, one of the most carefully crafted, deeply felt, cinematically rich films you will ever see. It's also one of the best examples of usage of mise-en-scene that you'll ever find. The way he suggests sexuality in the middle of the convent, whether it be the shape of mirrors or murals or lighting or sound, he cinematically surrounds the nuns with all the temptations and vices that they thought they had overcome long ago. I've been on record many times saying that it is quite possibly the most gorgeous color film ever photographed. And the whole thing was amazingly shot in a sound stage, which just suggests an amazing achievement of production design. And I know that has to do with a lot of collaborators, as Devin mentioned, but you need a master general to make all that work on top of telling the story, digging out themes in a meaningful way. There's this moment when, in a flashback, Deborah Carr says, I want it to be like this always, or something to that effect, in the middle of a slow, graphically matched dissolve to herself years later as a nun. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an example of great filmmaking. Just one of many in the film, Black Narcissus. Devin and I are in agreement on this one, Jim.
1: You will have no argument from me. Black Narcissus is a beautiful film. It's and, and a, a brilliantly directed one.
2: We got to move on to the big poobah here. Best picture of 1947. So I have, you know, as you might suspect, zero of these five in my top five, <laughs> but. I do have one of these in my top 10 films of 1947. And so obviously I will reveal that momentarily. In this category, there are two Christmas movies, a literary adaptation and a B movie in Crossfire, the first B movie ever to get a best picture nomination. And yet the winner was none of these. Gentleman's Agreement would take the top prize. And let's see if any of these guys think it should have. Devin, do you have gentlemen's agreement by chance? I do. yes or no?
0: You do, okay. Of these nominees, it's the one that I do agree should be voted for as best picture. It's extremely ambitious, but it's also remarkably sophisticated that this is a genuine example of the importance, meeting the
2: expectation uh, that it has of itself. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it surprised anyone to learn that I really don't like this film, and I never have. Jim talked about the screenplay, and that's the main issue, and I I feel like it needs that screenplay to have a good foundation. There's a lot of films that I agree with what they want to say and what they have to say and the importance. I just think they're poorly executed, and and this is a really good example of that in terms of its pedantic, didactic approach. It's preachy, heavy-handed, and all the things that I don't like about message movies.
1: I think I fall definitely more on your side on this, Jonathan. The thing that grated on me as it went along is... Philip Green's character didn't earn his indignation. Just going in and saying, by the way, I'm Jewish, and getting that sort of response, and without ever investigating the faith, the culture, all of these other things.
0: I I strongly believe that what the intentions were here were to emphasize certain realities While I agree with you guys that there was some repetition on some of the less interesting aspects of those realities, some of just the straight up very simplistic kind of bigotry, it also hit some of the more sophisticated angles on this issue. The apathy, the subconscious internalization of some of these biases, wanting to not have to deal with this. I think that starts to get a lot more interesting than just a simple pedantic message, while I don't think that that this was a home run by any means, I do think the slow burn of how it takes us to some of these more complex aspects of this societal
2: issue was really compelling in the end. So some hard disagreement there. Jim, your choice for what should have won out of these five nominees.
1: I mean, I, I once again went with great expectations, mainly for a lot of the reasons that I spoke about with David Lean, sweeping up a... Really tight scene work.
2: Good. I did not go with great expectations in this this time around for a picture. You know, I like the film very much. It's, it would be second place for me. Devin, great expectations. It's a very very good movie. I'm surprised you guys didn't predict what I was going to go with here um, out of the out of these nominees. We reviewed this film uh, on the show back in episode 21.3, and it made a top five. I did in episode 21.4. This this particular top five was top five Christmas movies. So for me, based on these nominees, I would choose Miracle on 34th Street, which I've ranked as my seventh favorite film of 1947. It's iconic and beloved, and so I don't have to make too big a case for it, I think, even though, obviously, these guys disagree. If anything, the spirit of joy and love interwoven into the film is beyond charming. I do think, to some degree, it's about faith, but not of the religious variety at all. I think it's more about joie de vivre, and to be honest, the connection between faith and joie de vivre. There's a saccharine quality to the film, but it overcomes that, I think, with moments like the one where Natalie Wood watches from afar as Santa Claus speaks a foreign language to a child on his lap. It's a beautiful, heartfelt, important moment. What it lacks for in cinematicism, it makes up for in heart. And a genuine perspective that seems to come from a place of compassion. For a year with a lot of films that waited in darkness, here's one that successfully, to me, navigated through the light. Devin, Miracle on 34th Street.
0: I like it. I don't think it should have won Best Picture. I, mean, I agree with much of what you said. I just, some of the extra sophistication that comes with either Great Expectations or Gentleman's Agreement outweigh the uh, elements that Miracle on 34th Street does so well. It is, it's very, very charming and, and does, I, I agree with you, does speak to some important, deeper ideas about heart and faith. Um, but, uh, but yeah, still, not quite woven with as many intricate fibers as as I would need to to choose it of these nominees.
2: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I disagree with the the intricate nature. I just, but I also feel like you know, it's such a subjective thing. Like it affected me. You know what I mean? It, you know, like it was it was just such a pleasant, wonderful experience. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I was just really emotionally invested where I was really turned off by some of these other films. Jim like Devin Plus.
1: I think it's a good movie. I think it's 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 a super enjoyable movie. Just like Edmund Gwen is the iconic Santa Claus. It is sort of a an iconic seasonal movie that we all have our own nostalgia and feelings towards. It's really good. I think there's just a little bit of sophistication and elevation to great expectations and when I was when I was making my choice.
2: You know, I feel like there's an undervaluing here of some of the sophistication of American Tony
1: it is a really good movie. Our our ranking of this is just coming down to taste.
2: And speaking of taste, we are going to now choose our films for um, should have been nominated for best picture. Now, before I do, is is there anybody out of all the categories? Because we we've all complained about the nominees all night. Um, and for me, every for there was none of my favorites that were a nominee. Like so, all of when for me and all the other categories, you know my favorite. Um, you know, whether it be best supporting actor, best screenplay, or whatever, was not a nominee. So, like, my, the, the should have, the should, should have been not. The, my favorites were the should have been nominated. It's in every case. Is there anybody where their favorite, whether it's performance or screenplay or direction, was there anybody that their favorite was actually one of the nominees? Like, if you had to rank number one, no, discounting best picture. I, I didn't think so because we we usually ask ask after each category, but I forgot but I'm pretty sure given our complaints about the nominees that for the most part, we all like, it was our, should have been nominated. That was each of our number ones in each category. Is there any case where that's not the case? All right. So that's, that's what I assume that's true for me as best picture as well. Um, so for should have been nominated Devin um, what, uh, what was your number one film of 1947 that should have been nominated for best picture?
0: No big surprise, black Narcissus. It's just posing some fascinating questions about the duality of the universe and about all of existence and all of these crazy disparate thoughts and and emotions that that get brought up in this this remarkable, remarkable film.
2: Knowing me as well as you
0: do, how do you think I'm gonna respond to this? I know you like
2: the film a lot. You might be in agreement that this should have won. Not only do I, is this the best film of 1947 for me, but it is also my ninth favorite film of all time, uh, Black Narcissus, um, which I had the very pleasure of uh, introducing Devin to at a screening at TCM Fest in 2017. Not only is it ridiculously cinematic and, and gorgeous, it's also extremely meaningful. To me, it's about spirituality. And again, not really in a monotheistic way, just in general. It's also about vocation and cultural divides, but m- perhaps most of all, to me, it's about the possible illusion of control, as these women struggle with their inner desires that they had suppressed for so long. It's as if the palace at Mopu is some sort of id magnet. And you can either give into it completely like Mr. Dean, stifle it completely like Sister Clodagh, or let it basically break you like Sister Ruth. And so perhaps the films that arrives at some sort of hope for balance, somehow acknowledging earthly desires like sex and wealth, but also accepting moderation in all things is that to say denying yourself is just as dangerous as the excesses. I've mentioned this film many times on the show over the years and hope even more people will give it a try and experience the intelligent artfulness of this extraordinary masterpiece. And that's not a word I use lightly. Again, my ninth favorite film of all time. And I've seen quite a few. And so... Jim, I understand you like Black Narcissus. I suspect that it's not gonna be a clean sweep. If it were, it would be our first ever clean sweep and it should have been nominated category. I don't think you're going there. Jim?
1: Black Narcissus was uh, one of my favorite movies from 1947. It is also the movie that I said should be nominated for best motion picture.
2: First time ever! (laughs) (laughs) it's the best picture. First time ever. Uh, we have uh, agreement on what should have been nominated for, for best picture. for if, if, First time ever, we have a clean sweep in the should have been nominated category. Eight years we've been doing this. <laughs> and that concludes the Oscar previews of the current year quite a moment and it happens to be for a movie that's my ninth favorite of all time and a movie that's not as talked about as much or well known amongst American audiences it, it is interesting when we do these year interviews with some exceptions obviously there does tend to be some agreement on the best films of the year when we did 1966 in review it was the best picture nominee so it was it was a should win we all agreed that Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was the best film of 1966. We all agreed that Goodfellas was the best film of 1990. We all agreed that Dangerous Liaisons was the best film of 1988. For 1970, we all agreed that MASH was the best film of 1970. You know, for all the years we've done this, there's been a lot of this, but this is the first time it was not a nominee. So this is, this is pretty significant, and I just wanted to give the audience, uh, you know, that perspective, um, you know, of our historical on the show. And I think that says a lot about the film. Um, Jim, anything you want to add to the things that, uh, that we said?
1: No, I think, I think you covered a lot of it. I thought the message was incredibly clear and kind of pure.
2: Yeah, I love that it's both clear and complex at the same time. I'm very excited that we have that agreement. So I'm going to move on to the lightning round. The way we do the lightning round, I'm just going to go through it very quickly. Lightning round, that's the way it works. I'm going to just go through what what won, what should have won, what should have been nominated. Most of these are craft categories. I'm going to start with the song. The winner was Zip Bitty Doo da from Song of the South. What should have won to me was the song You Do from Mother Wore Tights, which should have been nominated was Changing My Tune from Shocking Miss Pilgrim. Best score in a comedy or drama. The winner was A Double Life by Miklos Rosa. What should have won out of those nominees was Forever Amber. And what should have been nominated, Jim, is The Ghost and Mrs. North from the great Bernard Herrmann. Production Design in black and white, the winner was Great Expectations. What should have won, Great Expectations. What should have been nominated, is Jean Cocteau's inventive design for Beauty and the Beast, The Belle and the Bat. Best production design color, what won? Black Narcissus. What should have won? Black Narcissus. What should have been nominated? The Captain from Castile, although a big gap between Black Narcissus and Captain from Castile. Editing, <laughs> the winner was Body and Soul. What should have won was Odd Man Out. What should have been nominated? French film Panique from Jacques Duvivier. Cinematography, Back and Light. The winner was Great Expectations. What should have won? Great mm-hmm. Expectations. What should have been nominated is The Fugitive. John Ford's random little film in Mexico that he made with Henry Fonda called The Fugitive. Ridiculously gorgeous black and white cinematography. Speaking of ridiculously gorgeous cinematography, color cinematography winner, Black Narcissus, which should have won Black Narcissus. I've already called it the most gorgeous color cinematography ever, which should have been nominated as Captain from Castile again. An adapted screenplay. This finally allows me to mention my other film that from my top 100 is part of that films of 1947 and the aforementioned greatest noir film ever made to my mind. Um, and, uh, and it was adapted from a book called uh, Build, the Ga- Build My Gallows High. Um, the film is called Out of the Past. It's a great, complex, intelligent storytelling with hilariously cool and clever dialogue that continues to stick with me to this day. Devin mentioned Copacabana's having great one-liners. I would argue that Out of the Past even elevates it on top of having a great, fascinating story. Generally considered to be one of the greatest noirs of all time, and that's, and that's my perception as well. And my second favorite film, 1947, number 52 in my top 100 of all time. That's the lightning round, guys. All sorts of categories. Anybody have anything they want to say about any of those things?
1: No, I, I, Out of the Past is a great movie. <laughs> did, did like that one.
2: So we have one more question to answer. And that is in ter- you know, the thing we always do at the end of these shows is uh, we pick one film out of the films of 1947 that we'd like to remake films that have already been remade from 1947 is quite obviously nightmare alley was remade just last year by Guillermo del Toro. Miracle on 34th street has been remade. Secret of life of Walter Mitty has been remade out of the past was actually remade in a film called Against All Odds. Panique has been remade mostly here from 1989. Beauty and the Beast, of course, remade Great Expectations several times. The Ghost of Mrs. Muir was remade on television in the 60s. And Black Narcissist just recently, in the last year or so, was remade on, I think it was AMC, did a four-part miniseries. Those are the ones that have already been done. So with that said, that leads us to our, our choices for, out of the films of 1947, the ones that should be remade. Devin, what's your choice for what should have been remade? This
0: might seem like a curveball, but um, I'm gonna go with Born to Kill. Damn it!
2: <laughs> Did we have
0: that one? We have that. Yes. One? Wow, that's surprising. <laughs> have we had a sweep on that before?
2: No, um, no. We've never actually had crossover before. I
0: thought it was just a really fun noir with solid writing, surprisingly realistic portrayal of mental struggle. I think in 2023, we could do it better. And, and I think the way it bounced back and forth between genuine pathos and more of a camp perspective felt like a lot of what some more modern
2: thrillers have been doing. So this seemed like a good property to do that with. Uh, it's, it's a very famous noir, it, you know, like, you know, it's like one of those noirs that the that film historians really love. For me, just like Lawrence Tierney is so terrible and just like, you know, sinks the whole movie for me.
0: Yeah, We would definitely add? not use him if we remade it, Jake.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Although if we did, would you be able to tell <laughs> the difference? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Jim, anything you'd like to add to what Devin was saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, what, what hooked me into Born to Kill was I thought it was fascinating how everybody's morals were compromised. You couldn't trust anybody in this. And I think that that also sits with a much more modern sensibility.
2: Yeah, there was a lot that I wanted to remake, but um, none more so than this, um, because I was fascinated by from from this the story of this film, which is a true story from the case files of the U.S. Treasury Department. The name of the film is T-Men. The case that the film deals with is called The Case of the Shanghai Paper, which was a lengthy real life investigation to uncover a counterfeiting ring who found paper, like literal paper in China, that more closely matched the feel of real dollar bills and therefore became harder to detect. The case is fascinating. There were a lot of real life twists and turns, some undercover investigations, really interesting stuff. but It was executed like one of these lame how-to videos that they show kids in classrooms, complete with a voice of God narration that was condescending and disappointing. To me, it's a great example how a good story gets ruined, that the potential is there. And that's why I wanted to remake it. I don't suppose either of you guys saw T-Men. Very, very B-movie. Okay, great. Um, they can move right along and uh, we'll, we, we will recast that at, uh, later on next season. Um, that brings us to um, you know, some closing remarks here. And this is your poll, ladies and gentlemen. Every year, you, the audience, gets to choose amongst years that we might study for next year. So up there is 1948 as a possible year, which is 75 years ago, now in 2023, 60 years ago, 1963, 50 years ago, 1973, and 25 years ago, 1998. Votes need to be in by April 1st. I, I just want to say thank you to you both for all your hard work in watching you know, 32 movies each. Um, so uh, congratulations on, on that. And thank you for putting that time and effort into that and discussing them uh, with us here tonight. And I hope the audience um, enjoys them. Obviously this year didn't turn out exactly as planned in terms of the regular season. We got a little ambitious in trying to do the screenplay readings and the Fury commentary. And before we knew it, we were out of time and the year was over. I hope to correct that mistake going forward, but hopefully without foregoing those other elements related to the expansion of the No Name Cinema Society. Like the lessons of many of the films from both 1947 and 2022, it's all about balance. And that's something we're constantly working towards. Even though all this is volunteer, as it stands now, none of us are paid for this. I'm often asked why we do it. I mean, I can't speak for these guys. For me, each film I watch and each discussion of a film makes me a better artist, and believe it or not, I think a better person as well. As much darkness that becomes apparent in the films of both 1947 and 2022, there's also a cry for compassion, empathy, generosity, service, and love. And those lessons never get old. And this show and all that the society does provides me and these guys the platform to make those explorations, not only into cinema history, but artistic history and human history as well. I continue to be very grateful for this opportunity and hope to continue to share our feelings and discoveries with you in this space and others. It may not pay much or at all right now, but as they say, the best things in life are free. On behalf of Devin Michaels, Jim Carroll, and myself, I can now declare, ladies and gentlemen, this meeting of the No Name Cinema Society is adjourned.
1: Things in life are free. The stars belong.